Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be back with you this morning. Uh, the last two weeks I was out um, two weeks ago in Bear Lake uh, for our family retreat with many of you. And then uh, last week I was out with COVID. So thank you for uh, your prayers for me while I was away. And I'm grateful to be through that. And uh, hopefully that will hold me over through the winter as well. Um, but happy to have my uh, energy back and I'm delighted to be with you today. After a break from um, <coughs> for World Communion Sunday, which was last week, um, we're going to continue and then and also conclude our series that we've been looking at through uh, previous weeks called platitudes. Uh, these are phrases that are have become popularized and um, they're often used perhaps in churches and sometimes among Christians and they're kind of cliches. They tend to uh, convey a part of the truth, but when you look at them more closely, they're problematic and not truthful, not biblical. And in fact, they can even be hurtful to people. So several weeks ago, we looked at the phrase, everything happens for a reason. And uh, we often might use this phrase to comfort someone when they're going through a hard time. But what they hear when they're going through a difficult time and you say everything happens for a reason, what they hear is that God is making this difficult thing happen in my life. Life and that therefore this must be part of God's will and a purpose that I cannot see. And we learn that there are so many things that happen in our world that are actually not part of God's will, um, such as wars and uh, school shootings and all kinds of things that we experience that are not part of God's will. But what God does do is God is committed to bringing beauty out of chaos and redeeming the situations that we find ourselves in. And then we looked at the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. And, I, you know, part of what I like about that phrase is that um, uh, it's a call to be responsible. And uh, God calls us to take responsibility for our own lives, our own faith, our own spiritual development and growth. But it also is exactly the opposite of God's grace. Thank God that God routinely, consistently helps those who are unable able to help themselves. That's the essence of God's grace. We can't forgive uh, ourselves. We can't confer forgiveness. God's grace comes to us when we're not able to help ourselves. And then God calls us to be people who help others in real life situations when they cannot help themselves. And then two weeks ago, Pastor Bree gave a remarkable sermon on the phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle. And that's kind of similar to the first one, everything happens for a reason, God won't give you more than you can handle. Um, and what we, we think that that's comforting because it means that, well, God can, God can handle whatever it is that I'm going through. But the problem again is that maybe God did not give you this cancer that you're experiencing or whatever hard thing you're going through. But God does promise to help you with whatever life gives you. God doesn't give us all the bad things that happen in our life. So today we finish this series looking at a phrase that is not often used in churches like ours, but I bet you've heard it before. It's popular in some contexts. Uh, maybe you've picked it up. Maybe you've used it. Maybe you've seen it on a bumper sticker. It looks like this. God said it. I believe it, that settles it. How many of you have heard this phrase before? 
Raise your hand. God said, maybe you've seen it on a bumper sticker. It sounds very true. I want to start by talking about what I like about this phrase um, before I tear it apart. Um, <laughs> so what I like about this phrase um, is that uh, it, it gives the sense that we trust God no matter what. As Kathy so eloquently prayed that we bow our hearts in submission to, to God and thank God that there is a higher authority than me in my life. I need that. In the Presbyterian tradition, we place a really strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God. God is the ultimate power in the universe. The ultimate authority is our creator and, and the force that governs and sustains all living things. And so if God speaks, then who are we to question it or contradict God? Furthermore, we believe that we're imperfect people, that our judgment is off. It's not totally gone, but we make mistakes. We believe things that are false to be true. Um, we will choose the wrong course of action. We make mistakes, believe things that are, are lies. And so if God says something, then we don't have much of a standing to say that God is wrong and we're right. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's kind of like parenting, you know, like I, almost every parent has had an experience when they tell their child um, to do something and the child says, why? And you go through all of the reasons of why it's better for that person to do that and none of it matters and eventually you just resort to, well, because I said so. And uh, that's kind of like what this means, you know, because I said so. And so there's a partial truth to God said it I believe it, that settles it, or at least a goodness behind the intention of the phrase. But when it comes to actually looking, about, looking at the Bible and how we read the Bible and interpret the Bible, this doesn't capture the truth about the nature of Scripture or how we engage it in our lives. Let me begin with a peculiar example. I read this past week um, there were a number of preachers in the 1880s preaching in their churches on a very peculiar passage from the book of Deuteronomy. Take a look. You shall have a designated area outside the camp to which you shall go. With your utensils, you shall have a trowel. When you relieve yourself outside, you shall dig a hole with it and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God travels along with your camp to save you and to hand over your enemies to you, therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon preached on this text before. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, why in the 1880s were there all these sermons on this odd passage from Deuteronomy? Why? because indoor plumbing was coming. Indoor plumbing was coming, and you can just imagine that people, that Christians, had the audacity to suggest that churches might build an indoor toilet. I mean, how could they suggest such a thing? You can imagine the preachers preaching on this text who would dare suggest that church would have indoor toilets. You can almost hear it. God has promised to turn away from you if there are people going to the bathroom inside the camp. The church is the camp, and God does not want to see any indecent thing that you might do in there, and so we're going to keep the outhouses in the back where they've always been out behind the church. Why? Because God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. 
right? Um, so that might sound a little bit silly, but it was actually a serious debate in the 1880s. By the way, research shows that in modern American context, when a church is doing a, a building campaign and they're building a new building, the two most common questions that the leaders of the church get are one, how much parking will there be? And two, how many toilets will be on each floor? So we've kind of moved past this, haven't we? Um, we're not using this text anymore to eliminate, to not have bathrooms in churches. Um, and so we've worked past this. We don't build out houses based on this text. And God isn't offended when we go to the bathroom. But it's, it's not just the bathroom. The law of Moses has all kinds of things that are prohibited that we don't follow anymore, such as eating bacon or baby back ribs or shrimp or having mixed fibers in our clothing or we could talk about getting tattoos or men trimming the edges of their beards. All these things are forbidden by the law of Moses. And there are so many other ways in which this plays itself out. Let me give you just a few other examples that are, some are more drastic than others. Whoever strikes a father or mother shall be put to death. So your four-year-old throws a temper tantrum, slaps you on the leg. Are you going to put him down for that? Um, how about Exodus 35? Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy Sabbath of solemn rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. So any of you who went to work yesterday, come and talk to me afterwards and we can straighten it out. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Now, this approach to the Bible, this very literalist approach to the Bible, was really popular in America in, in the middle of the 19th century. And you know what was going on in the middle of the 19th century in the South was the great debate about slavery. In the 1840s, 50, 50s, and 60s, uh, they were dealing with this. It's in, in pulpits, in churches throughout the South. It actually started by northern preachers who moved to the South, and they had a point to make in this great debate about slavery. And their point was that there are over 200 verses in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that can be used to affirm slavery. And so the people in southern pulpits were advocating for this peculiar institution of slavery, and they were saying, this is God's social order. Order, and they rooted and grounded it in Scripture. Not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament too. This week, uh, uh, past week, I was reading part of a book um, by Larry Tice. He's, uh, he's an historian at the University of Georgia. And he wrote this, Nearly half of all the pro-slavery literature produced in the South prior to the Civil War, so all the pro-slavery documentation that would support the institution of slavery was written by pastors citing scriptural justification for slavery. So we've made our mistakes with this, the scriptures. This also applies in ways that aren't quite as harsh as the slavery example. You can take a look at 1 Timothy 2.9. This is Paul writing to his young protege. 
um, also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold pearls or expensive clothes. Uh, or 1 Peter 3.3, 3, do not adorn yourselves outwardly by braiding your hair and by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing. So I just want to mention in a moment, the ushers are going to come forward and pass around some baskets. And you can take your expensive jewelry, fancy watches, put them in there, and that will help us uh, replace the furnace in about a year or so. Um, so a lot of people uh, despise the Apostle Paul because of language that they see in his writings like this. Um, and they'll say that he's chauvinistic and, and sexist and things like this. But they're looking at Paul through a modern lens. When it comes to Paul, we've got to remember that the times in which these folks lived uh, was, was very different than our times. The Roman Empire in the first century, women didn't have rights. They, they couldn't hardly own property. They virtually uh, couldn't make an income. And so the gospel was actually in part a scandal that promoted a greater equality in the empire. Paul even said, uh, in Christ there is neither male nor female. There's, there's, they're equal in the kingdom of God. And there are women leaders in the church. You can read uh, half a dozen of them at the end of the book of Romans. And of course, the people who started the church of Philippi were women. And you find Jesus who was ministering to women and the first person who proclaimed the resurrection at the empty tomb was Mary Magdalene and so there was a kind of equality that was actually being promoted by the gospel that they weren't finding in the Roman Empire and then Paul comes back to this church and he's dealing with some complex situations and uh, a few specific things that are going on and he's navigating um, specific things and so from where we go to the bathroom to what to eat to the death penalty for rowdy kids, to slavery, to the jewelry we wear, to speaking in church, uh, we have to recognize that this phrase, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, is overly simplistic. And it doesn't capture the way we actually read and interpret and apply scripture in our lives. So part of the challenge uh, of this verse is that when we say God said it, we often draw a direct correlation between God and the Bible. So when we say God said it, what we mean is, you know, the Bible said it. Um, and from my perspective, when we draw that one-to-one -one correlation, we miss the mark on the nature of Scripture. Because we don't believe that the angel Gabriel dictated every word in this book to those who were writing it. These people had names, they lived in real context, they had real challenges going on in their lives and in the world at the time. Um, they, they had imperfections, they had fears, they had concerns, um, all sorts of things, and God uses these writers to accomplish his purposes. That is a testimony to the gracious provision of God to use ordinary human beings to accomplish his purpose in the world. And it began really with the first five books of Moses being told um, orally actually as stories around campfires to scrolls being read in the temple and then in synagogues to letters being circulated around churches to a graphic vision of the apocalypse. Some Christians have the idea that the Bible is God's words dictated exactly word for word. 
like, like, mo- like robotically moving the hands of those who, who wrote it. But in our tradition, we believe that God inspired the authors and, and God's interactions with God's people, but n- it's not God's exact words. In our tradition, we take the Bible very, very seriously, but we don't always take it literally. We don't ask people to put their faith and hope in the Bible. We ask people to put their faith and hope in the God of the Bible, the God to whom the Bible points. So there's a text that's often used when this phrase is quoted, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And it's from uh, 2 Timothy. Paul writes again to uh, his, his young Um, companion, and this is what he says. We'll take it in chunks. All scripture is inspired by God. What does that mean? What does he mean by this? First of all, what does all scripture mean when Paul wrote it in the first century? Because he certainly didn't mean all scripture is this Bible that we know of as the Old and New Testaments. The New Testament, I mean, it's in here. So, um, We have to ask, what what does he mean? There were, in his day, there were scrolls. And not even everybody agreed on which scrolls were authoritative and which were not. The Sadducees thought that it was only the first five books of Moses, the Torah, that was authoritative. And then there were even those who believed that the writings and the prophets should be included in all scripture. There were different sets of books in Alexandria than in Jerusalem. And mostly the same, but a few different. And Paul's generally drawing on the Greek Alexandrian text and not from the Jerusalem text. And it's not all that clear. It's kind of messy in the first century. And Paul knew this. It wouldn't be for several decades after his death that the church leaders would finally make a decision about what would be considered all scripture. But Paul doesn't worry about that. He just says all our sacred texts All the texts that carry authority with with us and that tell us our story and that tell us the truth of who we are. So that's what he means by all scripture. What does inspired by God mean? We think we know what that means, but do we really know what that means? what, What does that look like? The Greek word that Paul uses is the word theopneustos. It's an interesting word. It's a word that Paul seems to have made up. It's not found in the Greek language before the time of Paul, before Paul, and it's not found in any other of his writings. Um, It's it's as though he mentions it in passing here in in this text. The theopneustos, theo is the word God, and neupstos is from the word pneuma, which is the word for spirit, the Holy Spirit, or wind, or breath. So what does it mean? God-spirited, God-winded, God breathed, okay, God breathed, so we kind of go with that, and we don't really know exactly what that means. What does that mean that God breathed on this text, right? It could mean that God placed the ideas, the big ideas in the hearts and minds of those who wrote it. Could it also mean that the biblical authors wrote it and God breathes on it when we read it, so that when you read it, you hear God speaking to you through the text, Both of those are possible interpretations. But then Paul goes on to say, it's useful. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. That's his point. 
He doesn't explain and unpack the word that he uses, inspired, all scripture. He's just saying our sacred text, God breathes on them, and in some mysterious way, that makes them useful to us when we read them, and they help us to understand who God is and what is God's will for our lives. And so that means that scripture is complex. It needs to be interpreted, needs to be rightly handled, and that's why we try to understand it in its historical context and why they were writing these things and to whom, what was going on in the time and the literary context and the original language, the theology, and we say, how does this relate to us today? And that leads to one final thought, one, pro- one final problem with God said it, I believe it, that settles it, which is that it doesn't really settle it, does it? It doesn't settle it, and I haven't settled much of anything for you today. Um, I realize that, but it doesn't settle it because we have the important work of interpreting this text. Jesus didn't have the perspective of God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Unless it was a direct word from God to him, then yes, but he never applied it to the Bible. And instead, you'll find Jesus saying things like, you've heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. And so he reinterprets scripture for a new time. You see him disobeying um, uh, the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath, which was very upsetting to the literalist Pharisees at the time. And same with the apostles. Paul's out preaching to all these Jews and non-Jews, these Gentiles, these believers, and Paul knows all too well that God said to Abraham, you and all your male descendants shall be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. He knows the law of Moses says this, and so God said it, but that didn't settle it for Paul, not anymore, and what Paul knew was that there were a whole lot of young adults males and middle-aged males who were coming to Christ and the circumcision thing was going to be a bit of a hang-up. And so Paul said, I I don't think, yes, this is in the law of Moses, and I don't think God, it matters to God anymore in light of Jesus Christ. Even though God said it to Abraham and to Moses, I don't think it means it for these people today. And that was a total scandal at the time. Other Jewish Christians hated him for this. In Acts chapter 15, the question becomes before the, the council, what, did the, what, did these, what do these non-Jews uh, have to do then to be followers of the Jewish Messiah? And they debated and they wrestled and they discussed it and they said that almost everything except for a few things that are essential to sort of keep everybody from killing each other between the two groups, the rest of it doesn't, apply anymore. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Um, and eventually, many of the Jewish followers of Christ agreed, you know, these, these things aren't required by our covenant with Jesus Christ. So God said it, but the apostles said that doesn't settle it, not anymore. And so on Sunday, we, um, we, we changed our Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, and we eat a whole host of foods that are prohibited in the law. So instead of saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, they essentially said, the Bible says it, and we take it seriously, and we're going to reflect upon it in light of who, in light of Jesus Christ, and who he is, and what he taught us. It's actually just a common sense approach to studying scripture. I'd like to just leave you with 
kind of three principles that we employ in our tradition for engaging scriptures faithfully. When, and the first is this, when determining what God is saying through, through a particular passage, the first thing that we do is we pray. We ask God for guidance. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we don't believe that God has stopped speaking to us. That God, the God who spoke 2,000 years ago still speaks to us today. So when we read it, we ask God to guide us and we believe that the Spirit will do that. Secondly, we also believe that Scripture is best understood within community. That we, because we bring our own biases, our own backgrounds, our own social locations into our reading of the text, and it's important that we have other voices. This is our, the Presbyterian Church built the entire denominational structure on this principle. Um, we understand more clearly if we bring multiple voices. And then finally, when looking at a particular Bible passage, uh, we follow the guideline that Scripture interprets Scripture. So we don't take a verse out of context. Um, and isolate it and hold it up as, as if the rest of the scripture would agree if it says otherwise. So when Paul argues that women should be silent in church and that particular church, okay, but throughout the rest of Paul's witness, you see him lifting up women and arguing for a different way forward. And so we allow scripture to interpret scripture. So... I'll leave you with this, um, this thought. Uh, well, it's from a rabbi. Okay. This rabbi made a t-shirt about this phrase, and this is what it says. I, I think it's pretty good. God said it. I interpreted it as best I could in light of all the filters imposed by my upbringing and culture, which I try to control, but you can never do a perfect job. That doesn't settle it, but it does give me enough of a platform to base my values and decisions on. <laughs> Sounds like a rabbi, doesn't it? Yeah, I, you know, I love, I love the Bible. I have, um, my whole life is shaped by this book. I look at the entire world, my whole worldview is shaped by this story. I read it every day. I study it in depth every week. It's my defining story. My life was changed by the God I encountered from reading this book, and it continues to be so. Um, I've tried to memorize some of its word. I try to live by its precepts and fail every day. It contains for me the words of life. And it's okay to wrestle with it. God, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We remember that we don't worship the Bible. We worship you, the God of the Bible. We thank you that you've called us to be people of the book and to find our stories wrapped up in this story. We also acknowledge that we are imperfect and we interpret things we read things wrongly from time to time and we thank you for your grace which covers our mistakes. But give us your spirit that we might faithfully read this scripture and study it and give it everything that our brains can give it so that we might know more fully what is your will for us. And may we know you, be known by you and be loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.